I suspect I'm not the only parent who hopes that their children will be more faithful uh, than they are. We figured out yesterday I am the slowest bloomer in my family. I was 16 when I was baptized, and so uh, my wife and all my children have now surpassed that, and I just pray that that is a, something that God continues to do, to uh, allow my children and my wife to uh, grow closer to God uh, than I've been able to do, and so I'm thankful for um, the experience and the time this morning. I want you to imagine yourself as um, a participant in a very old, this has been around since the first century, this, this Jewish conundrum or puzzle of sorts. And so you're going to play a role in this conundrum, which is you have for a long time wanted to have your dream house built. You finally have got the finances together, uh, the notes have been signed, the, the contractor is signed up to do the work, and he gets to work. And every day you go by, right? That's what you do when you have a house being built, and you check on the progress, and months and months go by, and finally the house is done. You invite friends and family for this open house where you're going to show them this is what is being built. And as, as the open house is happening, there's a commotion, and you find your way over to the commotion, and it turns out that one of your guests has noticed that the house is built on a beam, that has letters etched in it. And this one particular guest says, that beam belongs to one of my friends and it was stolen. And you don't know what to do. And so what happened in this conundrum is they go to some of the leading rabbis and they say, what do you do when you find out that your house was built on a stolen beam? And Shammai is the one who offers the most conservative response. When they ask him what ought to be done if a house, maybe even a beautiful palace, is built on a stolen beam, Shammai's response is you must tear down the house to retrieve the beam and return it to its rightful owner. You cannot build something beautiful on a lie. Can you imagine all the implications of this? Your dream house torn down your financial resources exhausted. Everything needs to start again simply because you tried to build your house on a foundation that was stolen. Paul's letter to the Colossians is written to a group of people who probably had no idea what was in store the day that somebody said, there's this visiting preacher named Epiphras, and I'd like you to come and hear what he has to say. And in the course of Epiphras' teaching the people in Colossae, he most likely told them the gospel in a manner very similar to Paul, where he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And it was in response to that teaching that some of those who were addressed responded in faith and baptism. In the words of Paul, uh, of Paul, they were buried with him in baptism, and they were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. See, it was on that day when they heard the word of truth that they realized their houses had been built on a lie. And they, not just against their will, but voluntarily said, God, tear down whatever needs to be torn down and rebuild everything on this one truth that Jesus Christ is resurrected from the grave. 
So they allowed God to remove those faulty foundations and to rebuild their lives, realizing that Christ has been raised, that they had been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. See, the resurrection demands that we live our lives on a new foundation and based on a new reality. But it's interesting, I think even today there are some who say, well, is the resurrection really a foundational issue for Christians? I think about a man named Scott who says, who denies the resurrection, but claims to be a Christian. When asked about it, he says, I deviate from traditional Christianity. And is that a fair way to say? Do we, do we say, if I don't believe in the resurrection, it's a deviation or, or a minor altercation or just a simple, small adjustment to the faith? I mean, think about the fact that 27 of 23 of the New Testament books mention the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even if you look at the chapters themselves of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, 104 of them make the resurrection a central theological foundation for what's being said. Paul himself says of the resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. Resurrection is not simply an, an addition to or a simple small element of our faith. It is the foundation. As James Stewart says, not one line of the New Testament was written apart from the conviction of the resurrection of Christ. So the resurrection is what validates every other doctrine that's mentioned in the Bible. See, the resurrection becomes the foundation for an entirely new life. See, Paul, when he addressed the church in Colossae, he said, Continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel you have heard. And then later in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See, Paul is so concerned that they build everything they do on the foundation of the gospel, inclusive of the resurrection, that he gets concerned by the second chapter, when he's worried that they're doing things according to human tradition, and according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Because one who is baptized on the truth of the resurrection is required that everything be built on that sole and solid and single foundation, Christ resurrected from the grave. But I want us to ask ourselves, where does the resurrection fit in your life? If your life were a house of sorts, where would the resurrection be? Where does it find its place in the midst of marriage and finances and jobs and children and education and all of those things? Where is the resurrection for you? Is it the foundation? Has the whole house been torn down and rebuilt on a single foundation? I think for some of us, the resurrection is more like an ornament on the fireplace. And depending on the guests who are coming over, you might display it prominently. And on other occasions, you might just hide it in the sock drawer. If it went missing, you wouldn't even notice perhaps for weeks or months because the resurrection is simply a decoration in some of our lives. For some of us, I think the resurrection is more like a guest room in the house. It stays unused for the most part until somebody is visiting from out of town and it gets used on those occasions. Then the door shut and life goes on. Perhaps it's a weekly basis for you. Perhaps it's monthly. Perhaps it's annually. But sometimes the resurrection is just like a guest bedroom 
that we visit on just a rare occasion. I think for some of us, the resurrection could be like a book that's written left on the shelf. And in that book you wrote, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you put it back on the shelf. And if anyone ever questions you, you can go and pull out the book and show them, yes, I said I believe it. And then as soon as you're done, you put it right back on the shelf. And life continues just as it did before. For some of us, the resurrection is just simply used to cover up a scuff on the wall. It's like a picture that you hide something that you know, in general, the house is good, and in general, the house is solid and reliable. There's just this one little element that the resurrection needs to address in my life. When Paul talks about the resurrection to the church in Colossae, he says, it must be the foundation of everything we are. And all we do. So why is the resurrection so important? I think it's because of what the resurrection changes. Now, you're probably going to say, Craig, that's way too much of an overstatement here. But one of the cases Paul makes is the resurrection changes the entire cosmos or universe. See, Paul spoke in chapter 1, verse 5 of the word of truth, the gospel. And the gospel here literally means good news. And as silly as this sound, good news is simply that it is news about something that is good that has happened. Did you know that there's aspects and elements of the resurrection that have happened regardless of you believing in it or accepting it? They simply are things that God has changed. Think about it this way. If it's 2019, but you don't believe it's 2019, does it then therefore make it not 2019? It does not matter what you believe about it. The reality is that it is 2019. And there are elements of the resurrection, Paul says, that these are not based on belief. They are simply based on the good news of what God accomplished through Jesus Christ. One of those examples in 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them triumphing over them in it. Paul doesn't say, if they believe it, this will happen. Paul doesn't say, if you believe it, this will happen. He is simply stating, like you would read in the news, this is what has happened. Something significant on the cross has happened to the powers and authorities and rulers of this world. They have been cut off or they have been disarmed by what Christ did on the cross and through his resurrection. Whether you believe it or not, this is what has happened. Similar, in a similar way, in Colossians 1, 18 through 20, Paul says he is the head of the body. The church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. See, the good news, as N.T. Wright says, is that one true God has now taken charge of the world. In and through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. See, the resurrection has altered the ways that the powers, unseen powers, work and operate in our world. Even the, even the resurrection has changed and altered how time is viewed and understood. With the resurrection, we recognize we are now living in the last times. And we know that the thing that will end what is happening in this world is the second coming of Jesus Christ. So time itself is understood in a new way. And all of these are elements that are not enacted by human faith or enacted by human belief. They simply are new realities that are created by the resurrection of Christ. But there are other aspects and elements of the resurrection that do require 
one to believe in it and to participate in what God has done. And so the resurrection impacts then how Christians are to live their lives. So the resurrection has ethical or lifestyle implications with it. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.13, He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Prior to the American Revolution, those who lived in America were subject to Great Britain's rule of law. After the revolution, of course, when America sets up its own political and governmental system, you're no longer subject to that of whom you previously were. So you can live in the same house, on the same property, married to the same person, but you are now subject to new rules and powers and authorities. See, despite all that is common, you recognize this is a whole new world we're living in. And the resurrection is the new kingdom coming where we understand that we are under a completely new sovereign. We live under the lordship and the rule of Jesus Christ. See, citizens of this new kingdom must choose to participate in it. They give themselves in baptism as a way of dying to the old life to be raised anew so that their new life will be built on a single foundation. Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. See, through the resurrection, God has subjected everything to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We've read already that God did this so that Christ might come to have first place in everything. Or as Colossians 3.11 says, that Christ is all and in all. No matter where you go in this world, how high, how deep, how long, how wide you will find that that is a place to which Jesus is Lord. And this is a quote I've shared before of Abraham Cooper. He says, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ to his sovereign does not cry, Mine. And it's ironic as you read Colossians, because it has these first couple of chapters that, that in some ways we would call them so high and exalted. I mean, they, they have this great huge picture of, of death and burial and resurrection and cosmos changing. And then in the third chapter, Paul's going to start to say, now here's how you live as a response. And, and, and I suspect if you were hearing this letter for the first time, you might be disappointed by how ordinary it seems, Paul says, are the implications of the resurrection of Christ. So what parts of life are now subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ? In Colossians 3, 5, as we talked about, he talks first about our sexuality. We say, whoa, 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 we're talking about great cosmos change and how does that impact our lives? And now we're going to talk about our sexuality as a way that our lives are impacted? And Paul says, yes. Jesus rules over our sexuality. Something that's probably hard to find something any more earthly but it now finds itself under the domain of the resurrected Christ. In Colossians 3, 5, we're going to find also, Paul will talk about our relationship with stuff like greed and covetousness. And again, we say, well, wait, we need some, some big, huge instructions here, and all we're going to get because he's raised that changes our relationship with money and with economics and with finances. And then Paul will go on in verse 8 to talk about things like anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive language and lying, that these now are implications of what it means to live under the lordship of a risen Christ. So there I am on the volleyball court, and how I speak to someone, the kind of language I use, the, the kind of intensity and anger I express, that somehow 
impacted by the fact that Christ was resurrected? Yeah. I'm standing by the water cooler having a conversation with a coworker about another coworker, and you're telling me that conversation is impacted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And Paul will say, yes. Yes, it is. And Paul goes on to talk about our attitude and our relationship towards other groups, Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Synthachean, slave and free. How we interact with groups of people alters and is changed in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he'll go on to talk about relationship between husbands and wives, parents and children, bosses and employees. Those are the things the resurrection impacts, and Paul's answer is yes, yes, yes. You see how almost mundane or ordinary or perhaps even earthly we could call those things, this great resurrection calls for living it out in our everyday ordinary lives. So we'll take a brief example from this thing, greed or covetousness. And I I intentionally pick this because you're saying, Craig, okay, I'm here on Resurrection Sunday. And we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Now we're going to talk about money. Do you see the disconnect? And that's the point. Paul is saying is there is no disconnect here. Resurrection means what one does with their money is altered and transformed because it's built on this new foundation and new reality. So Paul in Colossians 3.5 says, What we put off is greed. Your translation may say covetousness, which is idolatry. So greed or covetousness is looking at something else and saying, I would be better if I had. And so you begin to long for and to seek for something else to complete something within you. And Paul is saying, if we're living the resurrected life, what do we see that is better than the fact that Christ Jesus has been raised from the grave? So the resurrection reorients our loves and our priorities and our values, even in regards to money. Norm Miller, um, who is now the CEO of Interstate Batteries, says that his goals in life were very simple. He wanted plenty of money and a great family. He says, I didn't want to be the next Bill Gates. He just wanted to be comfortable. And at the age of 35, he says he was making ample money had a beautiful wife and great kids. He reached all of his goals, and yet he still felt unfulfilled and empty. The goals he thought that would lead to happiness did not, and in fact, he said that he was miserable and anxious. I had all the money and success I ever wanted, my life, but my life was in shambles. And after his conversion to the resurrected Christ, he says, I realized that God did not measure success in dollars, but in love. He wanted me to love my neighbor. My barometer for success began to change. And that's the key of what the resurrection does in our lives. It's not just a doctrine we affirm, but it becomes a new barometer by which we measure things. Is this consistent with the foundation of the values and loves and priorities of the resurrected Christ? And anything that does not fall under his lordship We set aside to pursue that single goal of honoring and glorifying the resurrected Christ. And so Paul says an interesting thing. He says that this greed or this covetousness is some form of idolatry. It is a way of making something else Lord in our lives. We remember well what Jesus said, No man can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate one and love the other, 
or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. See, in some ways, it seems like greed or our relationship to money can become like a second beam for us. But doesn't that sound like a smart idea? I mean, you've got to be a Boy Scout and you've got to be prepared. And if plan A goes wrong, you've got to have a plan B. So I'm going to put a secondary beam there in case I find out the first is a stolen beam. That's fine. My foundation still rests secure. But Paul says when you try to build your house on two foundations, that's idolatry. You're stealing from God what he deserves. There cannot be any other foundation upon which we build our lives. In the resurrected life, Paul gives us this almost again just insultingly simple antidote to idolatry. And it's this theme that we find. It's there infrequently in Colossians, but when it's there, it's very powerful. And that's the theme of thanksgiving. So the antidote to idolatry in the resurrection life is thanksgiving. Paul says in Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father. In 3.15, he says, and be thankful. In 3.17, he says, and whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So if greed is this longing for, if I had this, the antidote is to say, look at all I already have. If God has given us the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what else could we long for? What else is there for us to hope for? Thanksgiving is the recognition that in Christ's resurrection, we have all we could ever long for. Thanksgiving is, in many ways, the way that we respond to the request to tear down the house. I imagine, I asked you at the beginning of the sermon to imagine what it would be like, this dream house, if you're taking it down. And many of us probably just this somber, sad posture. But in light of the resurrection, when God calls us to rebuild our lives on the foundation of the resurrection, thanksgiving is our approach. We we realize that though we're losing something, we're in fact not losing anything. We realize that our house has been built on a lie, and if we want something beautiful to come of it, we give over whatever is false and old and vain and empty. And we know when we trust that whatever God rebuilds in our lives will be better and deeper and more satisfying than anything we could have built on our own. See, the resurrection challenge for us is to return there frequently. See, as I look back over my life, I think when I first became a Christian, I probably explored all of those different ways of dealing with the resurrection. Sometimes the resurrection was just an ornament there on the fireplace. Sometimes it was, a, it was a guest room that I would occasionally revisit. Sometimes it was like that book or say, hey, you say I don't believe in the resurrection here. Let me show you and prove it to you. But I've longed to make the resurrection my foundation. I certainly don't do it completely and fully as God would long for me. But I, I ask myself the question... Is this thing I am doing with my life, is it built on the values and priorities of the resurrection? Because otherwise, it's going to be in vain. And I would rather voluntarily have my house torn down and rebuilt 
then one day try to stand before God and realize my whole foundation was off and that the house must be torn down. So as we go through our service this morning, I want you to be asking yourself the question, what foundation have you built your life upon? And if as we go through this service you realize that you have built your foundation on a lie, you must tear it down, retrieve the beam, return it to its rightful owner because you cannot build something beautiful on a lie. And God wants our lives to be beautiful. The only way to do that is to build your life on a solid foundation, the foundation of the resurrection. Uh, we're going to stand and sing a song uh, right now. Later in the day, uh, later this morning, we're going to do a blessing over you. But for now, I'm going to I'm going to be in the back. Uh, so as we sing this song, if if you want to talk about your foundation, uh, you want somebody to pray with you about that, come and find me in the back. Uh, a few of our elders may wander back there also. But at this point, if you want to respond in any way to the sermon, we invite you to come to the back. While together we stand and sing. Can it be that I should be?